I mean this, I said this earlier in uh, Sunday school, but it, I, I don't say this lightly. I really don't. It is a delight. It is a privilege for me to be here uh, with your church. I've been wanting to be here and come here for the last few years with my family. God has used your pastor, Terry Ball, uh, in an amazing way, not only over in Russia. Uh, this morning I read some stories about uh, Oriel, and I read, I read stories, not stories, but I guess letters from the two pastors that you support there in Oriel. And they said without payment, they were talking about, you know, if you ask any of the brothers there who has made the most impact in their life in terms of Americans who've come over to teach, and there's been a number of Americans who've come over to teach in Oriel, all of the pastors will say without hesitation, this, I think the term was slim and not very tall man, Pastor Terry Ball. That's the person who has come and impacted me the most. And, and just uh, his teaching, the man that he is, and not, not only that, but the congregation that you are. Uh, I am amazed at the way that your church gives. And I, I had thought that, well, probably in a small congregation that you support basically these four missionary pastors in Russia or in, in, in Belarus. And I find out that's not the case, that I don't know how many you support. But the way your church gives, and I want to say thank you so much for the way you've given for the summer camps. Thank you so much for the way that you have given over the past years, but especially this year, to support summer camps in Oriel. And I'm sure that Terry has said something, if not, shame on him. But I want you to understand that summer camps in Russia is not like summer camps, Christian summer camps in America. Now, in summer camps here in America, what is it? Well, you send the kids to camp for a week. You get rid of the kids for a week. They have their camp. They come from Christian families, etc., etc. That's not the case in the lands of Russia. The summer camps in the lands of Russia uh, are different than summer camps here, Christian camps in America. Russia is different than America. Just to give you a bit of history, and by the way, we'll go into the Word of God here, so stay with me, but... Just want to give you a little introduction here. In Russia, pre post or pre Soviet Union, the government used to have camps for kids. It was a way that they could, uh, you know, introduce them to the idea of communism and and all sorts of political ideas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. Well, in the fall of the Soviet Union, and, and parents loved to send their kids for a week or two to camp. You know, get rid of the kids, two weeks, week, and government you know, would teach them things. Well, at the fall of the Soviet Union, government stopped doing that. Now where do the kids go to camp? Aha! Aha! Opportunity for uh, the church. It's an opportunity here for the church for people, unbelievers, to send their kids to camp, you know, get rid of them for the week or two. And now instead of hearing you know, stuff that's dealing with uh, communism, it's a way for the gospel to go forth. And it's amazing. It's really amazing the the the. The way the kids are impacted through the summer camp ministry. I mean, the kids are there for a week, and so many times I could read story after story after story after story after story of kids who've come to the saving knowledge of Christ, not only a profession of faith, but they go back to their home and their parents say, there's something different about my 14-year-old, my 15-year-old. They're not rebellious. They're not talking back to me. I need to hear what you're teaching. I need to hear what happened. And they come to church. They come to church. I can tell you again, story after story. There's even a pastor that you support there in Belarus who has a tremendous ministry to handicapped children. I believe it's uh, Leonid, if I'm, if I'm uh, not mistaken, uh, who, who tells stories of 
parents coming to Christ because of their outreach to these to children, handicapped children. So understand that as you send money, it's not just so kids can go to camp and have a nice week. It's not just so that the kids can grow in the scriptures. But it is the, one of the primary ways that the church is a witness in the particular town. So thank you. Thank you for your sacrificial giving. Thank you for your partnership. Um, and again, it's just a privilege for me to be here. The passage I want to read from this morning and preach on is actually from Romans. It was not intended. I'm a little bit intimidated now because <laughs> you've been studying it so much here. I knew that you were in 2 Corinthians, so actually, uh, you know, was going to stay out of 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. So I said, well, Romans probably a safe. Well, no, it's not safe. So, yes, uh, let's go ahead and, and pray first. Heavenly Father, I pray for us and for myself, for each one of us in this uh, church today, that you may stir our hearts afresh. Stir our minds afresh. Stir our souls to love your word, to love Christ, to love your good news, the gospel. Stir our faith that we may believe. God, stir, stir us that we may live differently. Oh, be with us, Lord. Teach us from your word. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. Through Christ our Lord and Savior, the one who loves us, died and rose again. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 8. Romans 1, verse 8. Uh, would you please stand out of uh, reverence for the word of God and listen closely, for this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, who I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation to both the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You may be seated. Tell me if you agree with this statement. We feel most alive. We feel most alive when we are laboring in the things that we feel most passionate about. When we are laboring for the things we most feel most passionate about, we feel most alive, invigorated. This is true for the Christian and the non-Christian. 
Uh, Just think of yourself, the things that you love to do, the things that you have a desire to do, the things that, uh, and it could be, you know, something that's sacred, quote unquote, you know, that'll make that traditional distinction, although we shouldn't necessarily, the uh, sacred or even the secular, maybe it's motorcycles or golf or whatever, the things that you love. It's not laborious to do these things. Uh, One of the things that I love to do uh, is spend time with my sons. I love, especially my five-year-old, we have two, two children, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. And I love going to the park with my son. I mean, if they're to go to a nice sunny park and just run with him, he's an outdoor kid, outdoor kid. And I just love playing with him and getting on the jungle gyms and going down the slides and chasing and playing trucks and all that stuff, you know? And it's not a burden. It's not a burden to, to, for me to spend time with him. We, uh, there's a individual at SGA. Actually, he, he is a, uh, not, doesn't work for SGA, but, uh, he is involved in the ministry. His name is Warren Stoltz. I don't know if you've met Warren, but he is 77 years old. And he has, uh, on January 17th, 1994, 20 years ago, so when he was about 57, He was involved in a very, very, very serious car accident where he almost died. He was hit by, I believe, a truck head-on, almost had his legs amputated. I mean, just just, his legs were just crushed. And after many, 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 many surgeries, the doctors were able to save his legs. Walks now with a severe, severe, severe limp. But over the past eight years, he has made Six trips to Russia. Past eight years, he's made six trips to Russia to build churches, to help lead groups to build churches. And if you've ever been to a construction site here in America, construction sites in Russia, you know, have you beat? I mean, just uneven ground, being on these rickety ladders, being on these church buildings, et cetera, et cetera. This man who's 77 years old currently, his longest trip was a month and a half. Spent a month and a half over in Russia and would lead teams to build churches. And it was a joy. It wasn't laborious. I mean, it was hard work. But it was a delight to use his gifts, to work hard, even, again, being in airports and all these things. It wasn't laborious. And you see here in Romans, going to the scriptures here, As we read here in Romans chapter 1, and you see this all over Paul's writings, all over his letters, that he likewise has a passion. In fact, he has two passions that are linked. Paul Paul has two passions which are linked, and you see it all over his, uh, his letters. The first one, the first passion he had is over the wonder and the glory of the grace of God, the wonder, glory, power of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Manifested in Jesus Christ, especially through his work on Calvary's cross. Paul is just overwhelmed, overwhelmed at God's grace and kindness displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. What kind of God is like this? What kind of God is like this? So he has a passion for the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. The second passion he has, which is linked to this, is the proclamation of this good news, this good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews. You see that in verse uh, 16, of course, that well-known passage in verse 16 the proclamation of this good news to Jews and Gentiles in hopes that they will participate, that they will participate in this grace and majesty, that they too will behold their great God and his kindness, his love, his mercy through Christ. So he has basically, in other words, you see a man who's consumed and overwhelmed by the gospel and has a focused desire and commitment to proclaim it. And so I want to ask two questions here. Two questions. Why was Paul so consumed and captivated by the gospel? Why was he? You know, you see that one thing you see in his, uh, in his letters, it never became old hat. It never became old hat. It never became 
old news. Even in, uh, in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy won't turn there necessarily, but it's, I find it very interesting in the first chapter of 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy. And he, he starts essentially sharing the gospel with Timothy about how, how uh, he died for us, Christ died for us, uh, how he's in chains for the gospel, how Paul is in chains for the gospel. And he starts sharing about with Timothy the gospel. You think, well, why? Why is he sharing the gospel with Timothy? Is, is Timothy not a believer? Does he, is he questioning whether Timothy is sal- you know, salvation? No. No, he's not doing that. Paul is just so overwhelmed and, and invigorated and, and can't get beyond it. Even at his, his death, he can't get beyond it. And so he wants Timothy to say, look, look, see how beautiful this is. See how beautiful the mercy and glory of God is in Christ. So why was Paul so consumed and captivated by the gospel? And second, how does that gospel specifically apply to believers today? How does this gospel, the good news of Christ, apply to us today uh, because, again, you see these passages in this whole book of Romans was written not to unbelievers primarily, but to believers, to believers. And he spends so much time explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, to believers. This was written to Christians. Uh, you know, why does Paul explain in such depth and such beauty to these believers? So, first question, why was Paul so captivated by the gospel. Well, there's a problem. There's a problem. Uh, Look at verse 17 here. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17, he talks about it for the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? What is that righteousness of God? The righteousness of God, his holiness. It's his standard of perfection. God's righteousness is is his standard of perfection, his holiness. And that God being holy, perfect, expects all humans, all humans to live to it, uh, live up to it. God's, God's perfection, God's righteousness is up here, 100% perfection. And he expects every single person, every single person to match up to that, 100%, to be righteous, to be holy. You remember Jesus talked about that, be holy as I am holy. Be holy. We have that obligation to be perfect, to live perfectly before God. And when we take that seriously, when we really take that to heart, our reaction is what he says in Romans 3.10. It's too much. It's too much. That perfection, perfection is too much. Much we know in our own hearts, and if you you can identify with this, uh, if you're re- real with yourself, you can see your own life even over the past day, over the past week, over the past month, over the past year. You know in your own heart there is none righteous, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seek after God. Verse twelve, all. All of us have turned aside, and we can think over the last day, the last week, of how we have turned aside, how our hearts, how our minds, maybe it's our, not our actions, but even the things that are in our minds, even our own emotions. We have sinful emotions where, you know, why did I get angry? Why did I get all fed up about this particular thing? Why didn't I think and act in a godly manner? We have all turned aside. Together, we have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And if we are serious with ourselves, we understand that. But yet God has this righteous standard that he calls us to live up to. We have this obligation 
And so the wrong approach, the wrong approach as he has this, this God has, is righteous and holy. The wrong approach is, you know, I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to pull up my bootstraps and, uh, and, and do it. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? You know the story of Pilgrim's Progress? You know, you know the story. Pilgrim was in his town, sent out to go to uh, Celestial City, go find the, the small gate, the narrow gate, go through the narrow gate, go to the Celestial City, sent out by evangelist. Now along the road, he meets a man by the name of Worldly Wise Man. Meets this guy along the road as he goes to the wicked gate, the, the, um, the narrow gate. Meets a guy named Worldly Wise Man. And he says, you know, going that direction is very difficult. Very difficult. You see that hill up there? That hill, on top of that hill is a city called Morality. And there you'll meet this guy named Legality. Go up this hill, find the city morality, meet legality. And, and you'll, that's a much, a much easier way, much easier way. And so the story goes that he starts going up this hill. Sounds like a good plan. And he says the hill just became steeper and steeper and steeper and steeper. And the burden that he had on his back, the sin, felt heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And it felt like the mountain was just about to crush him. The wrong approach, the wrong approach is, you know, I know I fall short. I know I fell short yesterday. I know I'm sinful. I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to do better. I'm just going to do better. No, no, we need something deeper. And, you know, in this form, this, this, this aspect, you know, we may not be consciously thinking about this. But, but this aspect of, okay, I'm just going to work harder and, and we can fulfill God's righteousness on our, on our own. You know, even, even subconsciously, you know, we, we, can, we can get run into this, this problem. You know, you think of even like perhaps the good days that you've had. You know, you, you got up early and you prayed. You got up early and you, you read your Bible. You were in pretty stressful situations throughout the day at work or with your kids or with your spouse. And you sensed that by God's grace and mercy, you handled it well. The words that you said, you know, you had something to prepare for, a Sunday school or whatever. And you just, you just felt, you know, I, I, I did, I did right. I did right. And so the next day you say, you know, I'm going to get up. And pray and read my Bible so that God will bless me. I'm going to do all these things uh, because I know if I do these things that God will be bless me and I'll be right in his eyes. And so we start thinking that it's based upon us that keeps us right with God. It's, it's how good and how well we walk that keeps us right with God. And we always have this, you know, we... We gotta, we gotta do things right. We gotta do things right. And yes, we do. But even in our best days, even our best days, there is none righteous, not even one, none who understands. All have turned aside. There is no one who does good, not even one, even our best days. And the problem is not just what we're doing. The problem is, is deeper, deeper. You know, Paul talks about that, how the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The battle is with the sin that's in our own hearts, in our own minds, the laziness, anger, lust, pride, covetousness. There is none who does good. If trying hard is not the answer to fulfill God's righteousness, his holy standard, if just trying hard is not the answer to fulfill God's righteousness, what is the answer? Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3, where Paul gets to the gospel. And we'll go back to chapter 1, and we'll spend some time in chapter 1 here. But you know these verses. Chapter 3, verse 24, Paul explains the gospel. Verse 24 being justified, so how are, you know, we are justified, being justified as a gift 
by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's a mouthful. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at that. Being justified. Um, so being made right with God. We are justified. We are made righteous. Being justified as a gift. So this is something that God gives. We are justified as a gift. Something that God gives freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we are, we are justified. We're made right with God. And we are set free. Redemption. Set free. Liberated. Set free from the burden and the condemnation by something that Jesus does. That's something that Jesus did. We are made righteous. We are set free from the burden and the, of sin. Falling short, we're set free by something that Jesus did, and it's a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. Verse 25. Whom God displayed, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so we're justified, we're set free by what something that Jesus did. That Jesus Let's see. Forgave us, forgave us, you know, propitiation. We are forgiven for our sin. Atonement has been made through his blood on the cross. He took the burden and the condemnation that we deserve, that we deserve. We deserve condemnation. We deserve to be put upon that cross. We deserve to be nailed to the cross, to be naked, to be mocked to be humiliated before all people. We were the ones who deserved it because we were the ones who were in rebellion to God. We deserve this. But Christ took that punishment for our sins. He died for our sins. He said, he looked into our eyes, forgive me, using some illustration here, and said, I will suffer. I will suffer for your sins. God takes sin very seriously. Very seriously. He takes sin very seriously. How seriously? Look at the cross. Look at the blood. Look at Christ. I will cover the chasm. You deserve death and hell. I deserve death and hell. I will bridge that gap. You will not die. I died for you. Verse 26 of chapter 3 of Romans. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I want to pick up on that last half here. It says that he would be the just, he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It's the flip side of forgiveness. It's the flip side of verse 24 and 25. Not only did he die for our sin, but Jesus Christ is just. Jesus Christ is just. He is just, and he is the one who justifies us, those who have faith. He is the one who justifies us. So it's the aspect of when the Lord looks upon us, when the Lord looks upon Kenan Beer. When the Lord looks upon each of you who has trusted Christ as his Savior, her Savior, not only are you forgiven, the Lord sees Christ's righteousness in you. He does not see you. He does not see all the actions that you've done and all the thoughts and all the emotions of the last week and year and years. He does not look upon you and, and remember that, quote-unquote. He sees Christ's perfection, his righteousness, his righteousness. He sees that accredited, accounted to you, to me. And that, and that is good news. That, going back to Romans chapter 1, as he talks about the gospel, 
I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news. I'm not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God. God has given what we needed most, reconciliation with him. The thing that we need most in this world is not a car, not money, not stop marijuana or an abortion and all this kind of stuff. What we need most is reconciliation with him. We need a right relationship with God. And that is what Christ has brought. No man can do this. No team of engineers or lawyers and philosophers and doctors could form a plan to make us right with God. No horsepower, technology, anything, no modern Tower of Babel can bring us up to God. He made us right before Him. It's a gift, grace. And so we live by faith. Verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith, believing this, holding to this, valuing it. You know, uh, and I'll let Terry correct me if I'm wrong on this, okay? Uh, Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Uh, You know, some people have this view of assurance of salvation, okay? I made a profession of faith when I was... You know, I, not me, but when I was 13 years old, hypothetically, made a profession of faith, you know, and uh, or let's say, take it even better, my son, hypothetically, he's 13 years old, made a profession of faith. You know, in his 20s, he walked away, t- didn't do good things, check search, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I I know that he's saved because he made a profession of faith. He may be saved, I don't know, but you're not saved by a profession of faith. How how do I know I am saved? By what assurance? By what uh, what do I cling to? To believe now and today, what do I cling to? Believe that I have a place in heaven, that God has prepared a place, Jesus Christ has prepared a place for me in heaven. What will I say if I meet the Lord, will meet the Lord, what will I say? What do I think I will say I will say this, I think. God, I don't deserve to be here. I really don't deserve to be here. I don't. And you have every reason to send me to hell. But you know what? I'm counting on the promise of Christ that if I believe that you died for my sin, that you will save me, that I will spend eternity with you. The assurance of my salvation is based on a promise. It's based on a promise. It's based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he is sufficient and that the cross is sufficient to cover my sin. That's what I'm clinging to. That's what I'm holding to. That's what I am holding to and clinging to. That's the assurance of my salvation. That's what I'm believing. So we live by faith. We live by faith. We live holding on to this, holding on to this with all our might. And so what are the results? What are the results of this gospel, of believing this? Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God, reconciliation, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like to share a story, true story, of a believer by the name of Nikolai Hamatsyev, who grew up in Soviet Kazakhstan. And Nikolai, he's probably in his 50s or so, 60s, uh, grew up as a very, very bright individual. Bright student there in Soviet Kazakhstan. Uh, he graduated from school, went on to, to college and very postgraduate, and his specialty was physics. And, and he served in the Soviet army and worked as a teacher, uh, teaching physics. And he, he, uh, did some work in the Academy of Nuclear Physics. I don't, I don't understand all this stuff he did, but this was a smart cookie. This was a bright man. He served as the, uh, 
worked at the Institute of, as the general director of science in the Academy of, of Soviet Kazakhstan. I don't know what that is. He's the top of the top. Bright, bright, bright guy. But here's what he says. In spite of my high position in the secular world, uh, this life brought me a, a bit of disappointment or much disappointment. In spite of my high position, the fact that I had everything the world to offer, I was disappointed. I used to drink vodka and was a very proud atheist. I was not happy and my life was getting worse and worse. I needed something more that would bring, here's what he says, peace. That I needed something more that would bring peace for my soul. One day my wife Valentina heard about the good news of God who sent his son to die for our sins. A bit later, my wife came to Christ, trusted, repented. And in half a year, my 14-year-old daughter came to Christ. Then it happened to me, December 24th, 2000. No one could change my life. Only Jesus has changed my life absolutely. No one could change my life. Only Jesus has changed my life absolutely. After repentance, our family was changed. I came to the Lord at age 53. At age 53. And he just graduated from a, a Bible institute that we are helping support in Kazakhstan, in Almaty, Kazakhstan. So, results of, uh, of the gospel, we have peace with God. Reconciliation. And that is good news. You know, that... that God is on our side. We are on his side. We are his children, adopted children. Second result, and there's more than this, glorification. Romans uh, 30, I'm sorry, 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 30, where it says that he predestined us, also he called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And that is talking about future. That is talking about future. And we look forward to that day that we will be glorified. We will see him face to face in paradise. But that is also present. Present that he is changing us. That he is transforming us. So we have peace with God. We are glorified. We have the promise of future glorification and and transformation. And also, also, uh, results of the gospel, results of the gospel, as we believe, as we cling to this by faith, we are, it says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, new creation in Christ. And you see evidence of this in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Romans 1, uh, verse 8, it says, First of all, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What, what God is doing in your life, how God is transforming you, how God is, is just is, is changing you, is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Uh, Romans 6, 4, you, you don't necessarily need to turn it, but I'll just read this. And you see again just how the gospel gives a new direction, a new change, where, where Paul says this, Having, therefore, having been buried with him, Jesus Christ, through the baptism in, his de- in, in death, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We too may walk in the newness of life. We've been buried with him. We've died with him. We've been raised from the dead so that we might walk in the newness of life. Our lives for those, especially those who have come to Christ later, how many of you have come came to Christ later in life? Let's say, trusted, repented, twenties and beyond. Okay, twenties and beyond. You know, and hopefully, and even for those, you've seen how God, you know, through the gospel, radically changes your life, your thinking, who you are, your purpose what you're doing, what you're spending time on, what you care about. This is a, continue with the uh, story of 
Nikolai. Once I came to the Republic of Belarus. This is after he trusted and repented. One day I came to the Republic of Belarus, my native country, so it was still the Soviet Union, in Sloygansk city, to one of the churches, and I preached the gospel and shared with people how I was saved by God. During that meeting where he preached the gospel at this particular city, and this is even before he went to Bible Institute, I preached the gospel. During that uh, meeting, 36 people came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Among them, those people, my sister received salvation. All my relatives saw that my family and I were changed, that newness of life. All my relatives saw that my family and I were changed. We stopped drinking vodka, and it was a strong testimony for my relatives that only God, only God is able to change sinners like me. Before, I was a very proud atheist, but when Jesus saved me, my relatives started to meditate about God, who it is that's able to change people like me. So the results of the gospel, newness of life, we have peace with God, we are glorified, we are changed. So what? So what? You know, you're, you're believers. I hope most of you are believers here today, trusting in Christ, Repented. Uh, you've known this. You've known this for years. Is the gospel only for un, only for unbelievers? Yes, it's for unbelievers. God calls all men to be saved. That responsibility is it only for unbelievers? No. Paul again. I've said this earlier. Paul gives this deep explanation of the gospel to believers. Why? Look, if you would, at Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Paul talks about his desire to, uh, to come to Rome and to come and meet the believers. Verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel, is my witness how I unceasingly make mention of you. Paul has a desire uh, for these Romans, these believers, he he prays for them. Uh, verse 10, in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I must, may succeed in coming to you. I want to come and see you. Uh, verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you. I've made plans. I've I had it in my schedule and how I have been prevented thus far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul had this desire, this deep desire to come and, and visit those believers, those whom the faith, their faith was being proclaimed throughout the world. And he had a desire to bring a gift. To bring a gift. Look at verse 11. For I have longed to see you, for I have longed to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. I have longed to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. What gift did he want to bring to these Romans, these believers? Was it chocolates from Jerusalem? No. Was it matryoshka dolls from Jerusalem? No. Or souvenirs. No, it was the gospel. The gospel. He wanted to bring the gospel to these believers. And in some form, and I think you see this in the book of Romans, in some part, he is sending that gift ahead of him. This, this letter is the gift that he wants to bring to them. I can't get to you, so I'm going to send this gift via via letter to you in some small form. That the results, as I as I share this good news, the good news of Jesus Christ with you, verse 11, second half of verse 11, that you that you believers in this church, there in the church of Rome, us that you may be established. That you may be established, verse 12, that I may be encouraged 
together with you that we may be encouraged. I want to come to you and I want to bring the gospel that we may be encouraged, that I may, as Paul, be encouraged and you may be encouraged, that you may be established, uh, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to see, I want to hear from you. I want to see uh, your faith. See what God is doing in you. See how you're faithfully serving Christ. See how you love his word. See, you know, etc. And I'm going to be encouraged as I see God doing this and seeing what God has done. And my prayer is that you will be encouraged by what God is doing through me. And we can both be encouraged by the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I find my own heart, and perhaps you're like me, that it's easy to become discontent. I get discontent and discouraged way too easy. Way too easy. I get off track and off course. And there are times that I feel very distant from God. And my life is not growing. I'm not growing spiritually. You know, I think you, you can probably identify with that. You just you reach dry points. Dead points. Maybe it's because of sin. Maybe it's just because of times to God's just in his sovereignty. Giving us a time of dryness. See that in the book of Psalms with David. And Paul's answer and God's answer is this. To know the gospel. To know the gospel. To behold. Not just, okay, I'm saved and move on. But understand and go back to, go back to the gospel and realize that the cross, that the cross is for all of life. The cross is for all of life. There's an individual by the name of Joel Beakey who writes this. Listen, the greatest motivation the greatest motivation for practical Christ-like living is the doctrine of the cross. Hence, every failure to love, every failure to love can be traced back to a failure to understand the cross. When the cross of Christ grips us, when the cross of Christ grips us, grips us, everything in our world changes. I'll read that again. The greatest motivation for practical Christ-like living is the doctrine of the cross. So he's basically saying the doctrine of the cross should impact how we live. Uh, hence, every failure that we have, every failure that we have to love, say walk in holiness, can be traced back to the failure to understand the cross. When the cross of Christ grips us, everything in our world changes. You know, I really believe that. I really believe that. So oftentimes, we minimize our sin. We really say, you know, I'm not that bad. I wasn't that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm basically a good person. We minimize our sin. And therefore... We minimize the magnitude of the love and grace of God. That you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, dead, dead. No heartbeat. We minimize our sin and maximize our own self-righteousness. And we fail to understand the glory and the wonder and the beauty, the love of the cross. When we go through, and when I go through discontentment, uh, let me tell you a, a quick story here. I was going through a pretty dry time at one, one point in time many years ago. Been through dry times since then, but one particular time, and I, I went to a bookstore. And I was sitting there at the bookstore, reading my Bible, and I, and I happened to have find a seat in Borders Bookstore in sort of the self-help section. It's a quiet place, so I just kind of sat there and was was reading my Bible and praying, and kind of looked up. And I was I was in this dry period. You know, you look at the titles, 
10 ways to have a healthy, beautiful life. Make the most of your life. You know, title after title after title after title of self-help. And I found in my heart kind of a temptation. I didn't do this, but to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab one of those books. You know, I'm feeling like discontent and just, you know, my life needs to be changed and different. And I found myself just as a little temptation to go up there and just start grabbing the books. Just read what they say about having to have a wonderful, healthy life, maximize your potential, etc., 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 etc. And, you know, that's not the answer. It's not in a new way. You know, as we overcome, you know, we come through these dry periods, difficult periods. You know, it's, it's not that we need something new. Not something we need, you know, this is getting old. I need something new. God's encouragement, Paul's encouragement is go back to the cross. You don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. Paul, as I mentioned, could never get over the wonder and beauty and glory of the cross, and it changed everything. So, not getting up in the morning and working hard is the answer to being right with God. You know, it's not our our own actions and how well we live up to God's holy standard. But our righteousness is trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his person and work. And so the reason that we stand justified before him today, the reason we stand justified is because of his work, not ours. And so the reason we get up and pray in the morning, the reason that we read our Bible, the reason that we live differently is not to earn God's love, not to match up to his righteousness, but because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his love. We don't get up in the morning and pray somehow to earn God's blessing. We never could. We go because of his mercy and grace, which has been poured out to us. How good a God we have. The reason we search and understand his word, search the scriptures and study them is not somehow to to, uh, earn his blessing. But because we know that the floodgates of his mercy and grace will be open to us as we understand his good word to us. That's why we read the Bible. And this gospel, this gospel that we've been uh, talking about is exactly what we need to proclaim to the world around us, to the people, because it is the power of God. It is the power of God to salvation. It is what transforms lives. And what we need to do is focus on clearly presenting the gospel. Clearly presenting the gospel. Go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Paul is asking the church there in Colossae, pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up the door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Pray for me that I can make clear the good news of Christ, the gospel. And my question to you today and myself is, can we clearly and simply share the gospel, explain the gospel to a 10-year-old, to an 8-year-old? If if you were challenged, if you were challenged and an 8-year-old came up to you, Could you clearly, simply explain the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would challenge you, and I've actually even tried this. If you can't, but uh, take a half sheet of paper. Take just a half sheet of notebook paper 
and see in a half sheet of paper if you can clearly explain the good news of Jesus Christ, what he did for you. Forgiveness that he offers. Could you do that? Could you do that? Half sheet of paper. Could you? And I would encourage you to, to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Go through 1 Corinthians 15. We won't do that. Take it and try to summarize it. Half sheet of notebook paper. Half sheet of notebook paper. It's the gospel. Another, another thing uh, I would encourage you, if, and, and I love this book. Uh, how many of you have heard of Ultimate Questions? Ultimate Questions by John Blanchard. I, I think I actually have copies in my car. It's, it's the best track I've ever seen. It's not a track. It's actually a little booklet, maybe 20, 30 page. Very easy. Very easy. I have never seen the gospel, other than, let's say, the Bible, uh, presented in a clearer form. Again, it's about 30 pages long. It's talking about everything, the righteousness of God, depth of our sin, why why we're in the position that we are in terms of suffering in the world, Christ's work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, who Jesus is, who God is, wonderful. So it's called Ultimate Questions by John Blanchard. I would encourage you to, to become familiar with the gospel and you know, recite it over and over and over in your head, not only to share it, but because it is good news. Uh, are you consumed with the gospel? Like Paul, like Paul, verse 14, chapter 1 of Romans. I am under obligation. Do you feel that obligation? Do you feel that obligation that you have something wonderful, powerful, life-transforming? Do you feel that obligation to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish? Do you feel that obligation? Are you consumed by the gospel, the glory of God? Do you feel this debt to herald the gospel? Is that in your bones, in your heart? Is that something that you, as you see your unbelieving neighbor, that you pray and you get down on your knees before God and say, God, give me opportunity. Give me opportunity and boldness to share the gospel with my neighbor whose life is miserable, who doesn't know you. Is that your burden? Do you cry out with tears? Say, Lord, please, please help me. Help me. Help me. Help me. God, be merciful to this man, to this woman. Be merciful. Or are we distracted? Has the gospel lost its sweetness? I want to close with this uh, illustration. Where I come from, Rockford, Illinois, northern Illinois, there's this restaurant that I love. Restaurant is called Doc's Diner. Doc's. And the reason I like this, you go there for breakfast. And they have the most wonderful biscuits and gravy. They have the most wonderful biscuits. I love biscuits and gravy. Good, good biscuits and gravy. It's just, it's wonderful. Wonderful. And it's also like dirt cheap. You know, it's not good to say dirt in a restaurant, but you know, you get, you get, you get one biscuit, I only get one biscuit and gravy. And it comes on a plate like this big, and it fills you. It really fills you, and it's like $3.25. Three bucks, three, three twenty-five. If you get, if you get the two biscuits and gravy, which, if you're really hungry, you, you can, I've done it like once or twice, got the two, you know. And, uh, that's like four bucks. If you get the three, and occasionally I get the three and I'll like divide it and bring it home, et cetera, et cetera. That's like four fifty or something. So it's wonderful, awesome food for like dirt cheap price. And if you were to ask me where should I go for breakfast in Rockford, Illinois, I would recommend to you go to Doc's Diner. If we were to go to breakfast, I would say let's go to Doc's Diner, not the fancy Swedish pancake place. Go to Doc's Diner. Why? Why? Is it because I work for 
for Doc's Diner? No. Is it because I'm trying to wedge and force something upon you? You know, let's go. Let's, let's, I'm trying to, I feel this obligation. I just, this duty to take you to Doc's Diner. I know I should do that. No. Do I sell biscuits and gravy? No. I want you to experience what I've experienced. I want you to taste what I've tasted. I want you to essentially see and, and have this experience that I have. That's why I want to take you to Doc's Diner. I want you to, to taste the biscuits and gravy that I've tasted last Thursday, just a few days ago. They're good. Same with the gospel. Same with the gospel. We don't need to shoehorn in the gospel. You know, sometimes we feel like, oh, I need to share. We have the obligation. I feel this obligation to share the gospel. And so we try to manipulate conversations and uh, try to, okay, how do I do this? How do I, uh, how do I start bringing in God's truth, et cetera, et cetera? The more wonderful the news is to us, the more we're overwhelmed by this, the more we see that the gospel is for all of life, the more we see that and behold that, it naturally comes off our tongue. As our neighbor is sharing about what are their issues that are going on in their life with kids or grandkids or whatever, and you say, I feel for your brother. I feel for you. You know, I know that life is just messed up. And you know what we need more than just fixing a life? We need God. We need God. And you know, the problem is not your circumstance. The problem is you. You're separated from God. You're sinful. You're not acting right. You uh, are an abomination to God because you've rejected him. But God did not leave things that way. He sent his son to pay for your sin. You know, it comes off our tongue when we really love it, when we really behold it, when it is good news to us. It comes up our tongue. What is the gospel? The gospel is God's holy standard, that he is just, and that he saves sinners. He saves sinners by reconciling us to him. And this good news is what we need today. It's this good news that changes our life today. We need to believe it. And it's the good news. This gospel is what we preach, what we proclaim, what we share with those around us. Not only unbelievers, but even believers in here. That we may be encouraged, established. I think George Bernard said it best in his hymn, the old rugged cross. And I close with these words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. To my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on the old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. To my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray. Mighty God, Oh, uh, what do we say? What do we say? Father, we recognize that each of us is not worthy. 
Each of us is not worthy. But God, in your mercy, in your love, in your kindness, you made us worthy. You forgave. You reconciled. You imparted righteousness. You gave us the promise and hope of heaven. You made us your servants, your slaves, your children. And God, we pray that that we may not waste this life. We pray, Father, that we may not waste our lives upon temporal, petty things. God, we pray that we, in all situations, may become more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. That we may grow in godliness. Father, I pray for each one of us here that you may use us, God, to impact lives. That you, Lord, through us, that you, O Lord, through us may impact lives for eternity, be it for the believer or unbeliever. O God, keep us faithful. O God, help us, Father, forgive us, and may we not live distracted, worldly lives. God, we hate our own sin. We hate our own sin. We love Christ. Thank you, God, for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within us and transforms us and sanctifies us and uses us to proclaim your good news. Use us, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.